1: Hello and thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Barner, owner of Buyer's Meeting Point and the host of Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. Each week, my business history co-host Scott Luton and I travel back through time to bring you the best business stories, innovations, people and surprising facts, some of which you've probably heard of before and others of which are on the verge of being forgotten. If you enjoy our unique blend of storytelling and business history, take a minute to subscribe to the podcast and share a review. That will help others find us. In this week's episode, the week leading up to Christmas, we're going to travel back to visit an era and a place mythologized by one of the most popular Christmas stories of all time, A Christmas Carol. Technically considered a novella, shorter than a novel but longer than a short story, A Christmas Carol, Being a Ghost Story of Christmas, was written by Charles Dickens and published in 1843. The story takes place somewhere unspecific in the early 1800s, in London, just as Queen Victoria comes to the throne. The main character, Ebenezer Scrooge, takes a transformative journey thanks to his deceased business partner, Jacob Marley, and three ghosts or spirits. The Ghosts of Christmas Past, Christmas present and Christmas future. Along the way, we meet Scrooge's first employer, a long lost love, his nephew Fred, and of course, his poor clerk, Bob Cratchit. Spoiler alert, it has a happy ending. But if you don't know what you're looking and listening for, you may miss many examples of social and economic commentary that Dickens included in much of his writing. Before I dig into the business specifics, I find that for an era as well-imagined and romanticized as Charles Dickens' London, it's helpful to think about what else was going on in the world at the same time. The United States was still almost two decades away from fighting the Civil War, and so the early industrial north was a very different place from the agrarian south. The first major wagon train set off in the same year that A Christmas Carol was published leaving from Missouri and traveling over the Oregon Trail to reach the Pacific Northwest. Hawaii was recognized as an independent country by the United Kingdom and France. Edgar Allan Poe was writing away in the U.S., publishing The Telltale Heart, among other lesser-known works that same year. The steam-powered rotary printing press was invented and the first public telegraph line in the U.K. was laid. Ada Lovelace, published a translation of an article on the Analytical Engine and added extensive notes of her own, effectively becoming the first programmer. The 1840s were a time of technological change, but they were also a time of great disparity between the social classes. A number of those differences will become key elements in the plot of A Christmas Carol, starting with Ebenezer Scrooge's line of work. We know that Scrooge worked in a counting house. He was, or probably had been, a merchant of some kind. We see the roots of that in his younger self's apprenticeship with Fezziwig. When he had amassed enough capital of his own, he began lending to individual people and families in the community. Banks at the time were really intended for institutional or commercial lending, such as financing trade missions around the world people who needed a bit of cash to get by on or who wanted to take out the time-appropriate equivalent of a home equity loan could go to Scrooge and borrow a small amount albeit at a very high interest rate. This is where we start to get into the message about why Scrooge is such a bad guy. He was aggressive in his lending practices both in terms of interest rates and in his expectations for timely and complete collection of what was owed him there can be no doubt that many people would have been forced to accept his loan conditions because of their difficult economic standards, and there were few viable alternatives. But truthfully, he also would have played a very important role in that community. For people who were on their way up into the very newly formed middle class, Scrooge's Counting House would have represented their only accessible source of capital, assuming there were no wealthy family members to borrow from. And since the Industrial Revolution had swept in widespread social change, a well-timed and carefully repaid loan from Scrooge might have been a perilous but important stop on the way up the social ladder. Then, of course, on Christmas Eve, two gentlemen visit the counting house and ask for a donation on behalf of those struggling to get by. In this one exchange, we learn about several other institutions of the Victorian economy. Here is the scene. At this festive time of the year, Mr. Scrooge, said one of the gentlemen, taking up a pen, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries, Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comfort, sir. Are there no prisons? asked Scrooge. Plenty of prisons, said the gentleman, laying down the pen again. And the union workhouses, demanded Scrooge. Are they still in operation? They are still, returned the gentleman. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigor then, said Scrooge. Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course, said Scrooge. I'm very glad to hear it. And scene. Okay, so here are the places we're going to review from that exchange. The prisons, the union workhouses, and the treadmill. In the early 19th century, poverty was considered not just a crime, but a sign of moral weakness. Charles Dickens' own father spent time in prison, not because he committed a crime in the modern sense of the word, but because the family had fallen into debt. That was what society did with poor people in the mid-1800s. If you fell behind on your bills, you and your family went to prison. Even the wife and young kids went along. Not much better, but closely related, were the union workhouses, in this case, the word union suggests that multiple parishes – think church communities or neighborhoods – would pitch in together to run a shared workhouse. The Poor Laws, Scrooge asked about, had been in existence for hundreds of years. But in 1834, just nine years before Christmas Carol was published, a new law was passed. Reflecting the Victorian values of keeping men and women separate, The law split up families and forced people to sell their belongings before entering the workhouse system. The work was hard and the conditions and treatment very harsh, even degrading. The system didn't seem to offer people a way up or out, except to leave the workhouse and fall back outside of society living on the streets. And finally, the treadmill. No, this wasn't like what we see today in the cardio room at the gym or an at-home Peloton tread. This was one big manual labor wheel. Located in prisons, inmates would walk endlessly, pushing a huge wheel while holding bars at their chest height. With every step, the massive wheel would turn, grinding corn or doing some other type of work. They were allowed 12 minutes of break time every hour back to the idea of poverty being associated with sinfulness the treadmill was designed to be a preventative punishment or to be so difficult that nobody exposed to it would ever risk doing what they had done to end up there ever again Scrooge's feeling that these social programs were in place so that he wouldn't have to make a charitable donation at the holidays certainly don't warm the heart But not everyone in A Christmas Carol is poor or destitute, and we get a really interesting economic character in the example of Fred, Scrooge's nephew. We know he's irrepressibly pleasant, he loves Christmas, and he never quite gives up on his miserly old uncle. Economically speaking, Fred is the new middle to upper middle class. Christmas was just starting to take root in the 1840s, and all of the traditions that we now associate with Victorian-era celebrations are included in Fred's character. He goes about on Christmas Eve wishing others well. He has friends and family over for an intimate but formal dinner. And in different movie versions of the story, we see him singing songs or playing games. It is when Scrooge requests to be admitted to Fred's house for Christmas dinner at the end of the story that we know he has made the conscious decision to re-enter polite society and play by its rules. Fred, like Fezziwig before him, and even the two unnamed gentlemen taking up the collection on Christmas Eve, shows that in Dickens' paradigm, you can be wealthy without being bad. And this is an important point. Dickens wasn't advocating for socialism as a cure for economic inequality. He just wanted to call much needed attention to the disparity between comfortable and destitute, especially as the harsh conditions of the time often affected children the most. Children that he probably identified with. I mentioned that Charles Dickens' family went to debtor's prison. Well, Charles was old enough to work at the time. He was 12 years old. He boarded with a family friend and worked in a blacking factory, applying labels and tying up the containers. The working conditions were squalid and the pay was unbelievably poor, but it was simply what was expected of young people at the time. Children are very important in A Christmas Carol. From Scrooge's own past to Tiny Tim and his siblings, to two unnamed symbolic figures we meet as well. Charles Dickens also writes, for it is good to be children sometimes and never better than at Christmas when its mighty founder was a child himself. If you think back to the end of Scrooge's time with the ghost of Christmas present, under his robes, there was a little girl and a little boy. The ghost explains that the children belong to all mankind He says the boy is ignorance and the girl want, and then he offers a warning. Beware them both and all of their degree, but most of all, beware this boy. This exchange reinforces Dickens' hope for the economic progress of the time. Want is temporary, and while it can be severe and even dangerous if prolonged, there is nothing about it that has to prevent someone from elevating their status in life. Ignorance, on the other hand, That is a social sickness to be truly feared. In Dickens' opinion, education was the answer to many of the ills he highlighted in his writing. And its importance could be felt for all levels of the class structure. Seeing poor people as being lazy or morally weak, just because they were poor, made wealthy people just as ignorant as the illiterate poor and working classes they criticized. As we've seen, Charles Dickens' London was a hard place to live, but society was poised on the edge of progress. Despite his own poor beginnings, Charles Dickens died with a considerable estate and is now buried in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey with Geoffrey Chaucer, Alfred Lloyd Tennyson and Rudyard Kipling. A Christmas Carol is a story of redemption Rich people can be miserly and poor people can be generous. The choice is up to each of us every day who we want to be, regardless of how much we have. No matter what you celebrate this holiday season, try your best to defy expectations and be the best version of yourself, one day at a time. As I wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy start to the new year, I'll leave you with a last thought from our Mr. Dickens. It is a fair, even-handed, noble adjustment of things that while there is infection and disease and sorrow, there is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humor. On that note, it is time to wrap up this edition of This Week in Business History. Thank you so much for tuning into the show each week. Don't forget to check out the wide variety of industry thought leadership available at supplychainnow.com. As a friendly reminder, you can find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcast from, and be sure to tell us what you think. We would love to earn your review, and we encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, this is Kelly Barner. Wishing you a very Merry Christmas. We'll see you here next time here on This Week in Business History.